You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. We are currently in the middle of another topic that's spanning multiple episodes. Last time we talked about dealing with sin in our own lives by repenting, which means turning away from our sin and back toward God and then taking steps to avoid repeating the cycle in the future. If you're here for the first time, first of all, welcome. Thanks for being here. But also, I would highly recommend that you listen to that previous episode before you get into this one. I should also mention that I thought I was going to talk this time about how to respond to sin in other people. But the more I think about it, the more complicated this topic gets. And by the time I had made an outline for that episode... Based on the number of pages, it was going to be about a 45 to 50 minute ordeal. So I'm going to break it up once again and make this an official trilogy. So last time we talked about dealing with our own sin, and next time we're going to talk about what it means to confront other people's sin and how we can do that the right way. But this week, in the middle, we're going to take a deep dive into the common thread that runs between those two conversations. We're going to talk about forgiveness. Now, I've already laid the groundwork for this topic last time by covering what it looks like for me to go to God and have him forgive me for the sins I've committed so I won't bore you with all of those details all over again. What I will say to sum up is that God always wants to forgive us. All we have to do is ask, we keep going back to him as many times as we have to, and we keep asking. The other detail that I'm going to pull forward from the previous episode is that God loves us so much that he's not going to leave us in our sin. He loves us enough to take us from where we are in our sin and help us to transform beyond it. And that's a process that we call sanctification. Now, I did have a couple of questions from some listeners after they listened to that last episode about the so-called unforgivable sin, which is committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit along with the age-old question, can you lose your salvation? Before we talk about forgiving others, I'd like to address those two topics for a couple of minutes each, just to really wrap up the conversation of what we do with the sin in our own lives. So let's start with that first question. What is the unforgivable sin? The idea that there's one sin that can't be forgiven is alarming for a lot of people, understandably. And the fact that it's so unclearly defined has caused a lot of mental anguish in some believers who get fixated on the fear that they might have unknowingly committed this unforgivable sin and there's no hope anymore. That has happened to me personally. I've gotten stuck in that fear. And it's happened to other people that I've known. So if you've had those thoughts, first of all, I need to tell you that you are not alone. Meanwhile, some of you might be listening to this and thinking, I thought God would always forgive no matter what. And that's actually true. You see, it's not that God is unwilling to forgive blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because he's weirdly oversensitive about it, and it's not because of the specific words that might be said or anything like that. First of all, I should mention that this question is based on something that Jesus said, and it's recorded in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 12. And basically, the context in all three of those chapters is that Jesus is in the middle of a heated discussion with the religious leadership of his day, and they accused him of performing miracles on behalf of the devil. 
And since he was, in fact, the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, that was obviously untrue. When we say that this particular sin is unforgivable, I don't think what we mean is that God is unable to forgive it, so much as that person is not able to be forgiven. Because what they're doing is willfully hardening their own hearts, shutting up their spiritual eyes and ears, and bluntly refusing to give in to the Holy Spirit's influence. As Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 say, such a person cannot be brought back to repentance, which we described two weeks ago as accepting the invitation back into a relationship with God. Not because God is stubbornly refusing their honest repentance, but because they have become unwilling to repent. And so if anyone listening to this podcast is worried that they might have committed the unforgivable sin, or that God can't forgive them because they're too far gone, or that the things they've done are just too sinful, and God has to draw the line somewhere, let me set your mind at ease once and for all. The fact that you are worried about your relationship with God means that you still have one, and that your heart is still tender enough to care what he thinks and feels about you. So if you're concerned at all with blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you haven't done it yet, and you're not likely to anytime soon. Now for the second question, which is related to the first one, a lot of people over the centuries have argued back and forth about whether or not we can lose our salvation. That one seemingly simple question raises a whole lot of others like, what is salvation? And is there predestination? And I'm not really prepared to get all the way into that just yet. In a future season, there very well might be a time for us to go into that deep technical theology. But for now, I'll say that there are a number of Bible verses that seem to say you can, or at least that warn us against losing our salvation and walking away. But there are also several verses that seem to say you won't, or at least that God is always willing and able to keep you from drifting away so long as you keep saying yes to him. So when people ask me if it's possible for a follower of Jesus to lose their salvation, my answer is always, why are you asking? If you want to know because you're trying to figure out how far is too far or what you can get away with without receiving punishment, I would suggest to you that you have bigger issues to figure out in your relationship with God than what your theological position on eternal security might be. I'm not going to tell you straight up that you're not a Christian at that point, but you might not be, and you really should figure that out. However, if you're asking because you're worried about it and because you don't want to drift away from God, because your relationship with him is too precious to lose, then Again, you are in much better shape than you think. The question itself is evidence that you are in the process of turning yourself away from sin and back toward God. Even if you're not in the best place right at this moment, you're moving in the right direction. And that means you're going to be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing, turning away from sin, turning back toward God, and trusting him in the process. So with that little bit of housekeeping taken care of, Let's move on now to the greater topic of forgiveness toward others. As Christians, this is supposed to be our first and most important response to the fact that other people sin. We're supposed to offer them the same mercy that we received from God. Because God has forgiven us for so many things, we're required to likewise forgive the people who sin against us. This was a common topic in Jesus' teaching, and the standard that he set was remarkably simple. 
If you don't forgive others, don't expect God to forgive you. He even hammered this point home with a story that we call the parable of the unmerciful servant. And that's found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, in case you want to read it for yourself. The short version of this story that Jesus told was that there was a man who owed a great deal of money to his boss. And on the day that the boss came to collect it, the man couldn't pay up. And so he begged for mercy. He said, give me more time. I'll do anything. I promise I can pay it eventually. I just can't do it right now. And so the boss took pity on him and actually said, you don't have to pay. Your debt is forgiven. And so, of course, the man says, thank you. And then he leaves. On his way out the door, he sees someone else who owed him a much smaller figure of money. The numbers Jesus uses in the text are basically the difference between a year's salary and a couple days' wages. So it's not at all comparable. The guy who had just been forgiven pushes the other guy around and demands what's rightfully his, and the same thing happens. This new guy begs and promises to pay up eventually, but the first man won't have it. He puts the other guy into collections, sends him to prison, basically bankrupts him. Now when the big boss finds out what happened, he's understandably very upset, and let's just say it ends very poorly for the ungrateful servant. From that story, we can learn a lot about what forgiveness is in biblical terms. Usually in the Bible, it's likened to the concept of canceling a debt. Now that debt isn't always money. For instance, a person may owe you an apology for the way that they hurt you, whether that's physically, emotionally, socially, or however else. They may owe you a favor, or they may owe you 20 bucks, or a million other things. The point is that they harmed you in some way, or they took something from you, and you have a right, according to the basic rules of decency and fairness, to demand that they make it right in some way. So to forgive them is to say that they owe you nothing. It's ripping up the IOU, handing it back to them, and saying, don't worry about it, we are all set. To be clear, this doesn't excuse their sin, and it doesn't mean that whatever they did was okay, but from this point onward, forgiveness means that you no longer demand or even expect an apology or repayment, or for them to suffer the same way that you did. Honestly, that last point is the one where it gets really difficult, because oftentimes the repayment we want is not that the other person would restore what they've taken from us, but instead we want them to experience the same pain and anguish that we did. We want revenge. Now that's a very natural, normal, and honestly justifiable impulse that's present in almost every human being. They did something to me, so I should be able to do it back to them. Or at the very least, somebody ought to do it to them because they've got it coming. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? That was the law. The problem with this response is, first of all, that once again it runs into that judgment problem that we talked about a couple of minutes ago. If I demand fairness and retribution from everyone who offends me, why shouldn't God demand the same thing? Beyond that, though, as Jesus' followers, we should at least be in the process of learning to want the same things that he wants. And what's in his heart is mercy. Finally, revenge isn't the answer precisely because that right belongs solely to God. Remember that he is the judge. He alone has the authority and the wisdom to punish people for their wrongdoings. This is a really unpopular teaching for a lot of people because we don't like to think of God as a judge. But I think a better word here might be that he's our defender. Because he loves us as a genuinely good father, 
And because his plan isn't to eternally minimize the actual legitimate evils that we've all suffered under in one form or another, there is a day coming when he will avenge all the wrongs that were ever committed against his children. That's also a big part of why Jesus' death on the cross is necessary. The punishment for those wrongs wasn't just going to be erased from history because that would be an insult to the victims of those sins. But instead, Jesus took that punishment on behalf of anyone who would accept his mercy. So in a way, when we demand repayment for all kinds of debts, we're not really demanding it from the offender. Because on the offender's side, it has been paid for by God. So when we demand repayment from them, we're really demanding it from God. And I'd really rather not compare IOUs with God to see whether he owes me more or I owe him more. I know without a doubt which side that particular equation is going to balance out to, and I'm really not trying to play that game. I'd much rather just accept forgiveness from him and offer it to others on his behalf. On a practical level, how to do that, the actual process of forgiving someone is neither quick nor easy, but it is at least very simple. The first step is to just not demand repayment from someone. And that even includes apologies. To say that they owe you nothing means that they owe you nothing. I know a lot of Christians who get caught up in unforgiveness because they think the other person has to initiate the process by apologizing, and only then will the offended person be willing and able to forgive. And I gotta tell you, that's not forgiveness. I know this is going to sound extreme, but it has to be truly unconditional, and it has to be total or it's not the type of forgiveness that God both provides to and expects from his people. To be clear here before I move on, that doesn't mean that you refuse an apology or restitution or making amends from another person if they are offering it sincerely. After all, those can be great steps on their part toward mending the relationship and rebuilding trust, but the point is that we don't require it. As Christians, the initiative falls on us. I am required to forgive whether or not they even know that they have sinned against me, period. It's also worth mentioning here that forgiveness doesn't mean your relationship with that person is automatically restored. They may owe you nothing, but you also don't owe them anything in terms of trust or friendship any more than you did before the offense happened. Jesus urged his disciples in Matthew 10 verse 16 to be as wise as snakes, but as harmless as doves. In other words, we don't bite back, but we're also 100% free, authorized by Jesus himself, to keep ourselves from being taken advantage of. Exercise appropriate wisdom in how much access you grant someone, especially if they are a repeat offender. If they've shown themselves to be consistently untrustworthy, then our job is to forgive them truly from the bottom of our hearts, wish them well, and then move on if necessary. Believe it or not, that's the easy part of forgiveness, the outward stance we develop toward the person that we're forgiving. The much harder part is often the internal battle that takes place inside of us. If we've been wronged, it's normal to experience feelings of anger and resentment. And by the way, the Bible doesn't tell us not to be angry. It tells us not to sin with our anger. And so those emotions by themselves are not necessarily a sin, it's what are you going to do with them? Our goal is to avoid letting those feelings stew and fester in our hearts, making us bitter, and ultimately harming our own relationship with God because they definitely will. 
Harboring unforgiveness is one of the quickest ways to shut down the sensitivity of our hearts to God's Holy Spirit. Instead, we've got to process those negative emotions, ultimately entrusting them to God for His judgment or mercy, like I said earlier. There are a number of healthy ways to go about doing that. First, I recommend doing what you can to think the best of the person you've been hurt by. Give them the benefit of a doubt. If it's at all conceivable that they didn't mean to do you any harm, remember that. It's much easier to forgive someone if you don't assume the worst about their motives. However, even if their intention was to harm you, I find it useful to remind myself that they are also human beings who have been hurt by others and who have experienced pain too. In other words, put yourself in their shoes. Developing empathy is a great way to start forgiving someone. Next, something that I like to do is to act in exactly the opposite way from what my revenge instinct tells me to. Jesus described this kind of tactic numerous times. He said, If they steal from you, give them even more. If they curse you, speak words of blessing to them. It's completely unnatural and it takes practice, but it's the way Jesus lived his life. And we're trying to follow him by becoming more like him. Finally, prayer is crucially important here. I don't know how anyone processes these things on their own. When I'm feeling anger, the quickest way to get through it is to pray. And this isn't an instantaneous process, but it's the only way I know to do it. First of all, I pray simply that God would help me process what I'm feeling and give me the strength to forgive. But also, I actively ask God to forgive that person just like he's forgiven me. And I tell him out loud if necessary that I trust him with the burden of judgment, that it's his job to forgive or to judge, not mine. Over time, whether it takes minutes or decades, the pain of whatever so-and-so did to me fades, and I find myself genuinely loving that person, hoping they experience God's mercy, and wanting the best for them. And I have to tell you, there's no better feeling in the world than being free from all of that hatred and anger and resentment That's a big part of the benefit that makes forgiveness such a good idea. When we hold on to our anger and hatred, when we replay those wrongs that have been done against us over and over again in our minds and hearts, it destroys us spiritually and emotionally. It's unhealthy. There's an old saying that refusing to forgive someone is like drinking poison yourself and hoping that they get sick. Obviously, it doesn't work that way. Your unforgiveness toward them may or may not ever affect them at all. For sure, there are more than enough ways to make someone else's life miserable because they've hurt us. Just like the servant in that story earlier whose refusal resulted in actual misery and suffering for the third character who owed him a little bit of money, the power is ours to destroy other people's lives. But what I can promise you is that in the process, whether we affect them at all, we will end up hurting ourselves in the process, perhaps even more than we hurt them. And it's just not worth it. I'd like to switch gears here for the rest of our time today and talk about confession. Now that we've talked about how to grant forgiveness to another person within ourselves, there is a point where we may be called to offer God's forgiveness to another person. Confession is something that we talked about in the previous episode, but that was from the perspective of the person doing the confessing. But today, let's talk about if you're on the other side of that, if you are the person receiving their confession. 
And this could be because they've sinned against you, but it's also possible that a fellow Christian may choose you to confide in about the sins that they've been carrying around that have nothing to do with you. In that case, first of all, you should consider yourself highly honored. That means that this brother or sister trusts you and regards you highly enough to let down their guard. I've been in this position a few times, and each time I've made sure to thank the person for being brave enough to confide in me. This process takes courage, and it's good to honor that out loud. On the flip side of that coin, though, make sure that you are worthy of their trust. Whatever they say to you in this moment, whatever they confess to you, is sacred. A lot of the time we're talking about the deepest secrets of a person's heart. And so, it's your job, as the person that they confess to, to protect it and to keep it a secret, and in doing so, to respect the confidence that they have placed in you. Now, there are circumstances where you may be legally required to report their sin to others, like if laws are being broken, or if they have any intention to harm themselves or to harm others. That's especially true if you don't happen to be an ordained minister, since the confessions that they hear are often considered privileged information, like things that you might tell a lawyer or a doctor. But don't walk away from this episode thinking that you have to be a professional to hear someone's confession. You also don't have to be particularly skilled or super spiritual or a monk or anything like that. If it helps calm your nerves, they're not really confessing to you anyway. They're confessing to Jesus who lives in you. You become his representative in this situation. And it's not your job for you to forgive them so much as it's Jesus' job to forgive them. And you're just expressing that out loud in a way that they as a human being can see and feel and hear. Any Christian is capable of representing Christ to another person in that way. When you hear a confession, whether or not you're personally affected by that person's sin, your main job is to absolve them, to tell them that they are forgiven, that their sins have been taken away, that they're clean, that they're blameless in God's sight. In the process, be sure to listen to them. Let them get it all off their chest, and whatever you do, Make sure they know that they don't need to carry this burden around anymore. If you do need to extend your personal forgiveness to them alongside God's forgiveness, this would be a great time to do that. Finally, to whatever degree that you're able, offer to do a follow-up with them. Letting go of a sinful habit is never easy. The person whose confession you just heard may need an ally or a support structure or someone that can just encourage them. Just like we talked about in the last episode, it's very common for one act of confession to be the seed that grows into an ongoing accountability partnership. Ultimately, the goal here isn't just to offer forgiveness, but to help this person get free. If you can help them achieve that goal, then do it. Confession really is a beautiful thing, and I wish that every time I came into contact with another person's sin, it could be that easy and simple. But as we all know, that's not a guarantee. Sometimes other people can be completely unaware of their sin. Or maybe they know perfectly well that they're in sin, or they don't feel like they have the ability or don't even care to change their behavior. So what do you do then? That would be the topic of our next episode, How to Confront Sin and Other People. Please join me in two weeks for that discussion, which should wrap up this trilogy about how to deal with sin overall. In the meantime, do me a favor and give this podcast a good rating on YouTube or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. 
Word of mouth is good too, but as a reminder, those reviews and ratings help the algorithm know that it should recommend Finchwood to other listeners, so thank you for doing that. I will talk to you in two weeks, and meanwhile, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.